0: we'll begin reading in Romans 7. We're working through the entire chapter from verse 1 through verse 25. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Let's pray. Father, as we come to Your Word this morning, and even in a passage that can be confusing, difficult to understand, we ask God that Your Spirit will speak and You'll lead us into all truth and understanding. Speak, Lord, for Your servants are listening. Amen. It's at the end of this tangled passage about sin and law that Paul speaks very clearly. He explodes with rejoicing and thanksgiving. At the end of announcing the grace of God, as he experiences it himself, he says, Thanks be to God. The words that you just announced yourselves at the end of the scripture reading, Paul explodes with thanksgiving, rejoicing in front of God because of the experience of God's grace. Grace generates gratitude that seeks to find expression in front of God. This is clear from Romans 7. As Paul works through the treachery of sin and how sin has compromised him and everyone who walks in human flesh and now but in Jesus Christ, God has delivered us from that sin. And so we can announce Thanksgiving. And that this Thanksgiving, it's not just some pious gratefulness. But rather, this thanksgiving, it's the core, it's the very marrow of the Christian life. That the Christian is marked by the new song that God has put in their mouth. That a new song full of rejoicing has been placed in our mouths because of what God has done for us in Jesus. And the question is, why? why is thanksgiving the native tongue of the Christian? Why exactly is that? That the whole sum of the Christian life can be summed up with the word thanksgiving. Why is that? And I believe we find the answer in Romans 7. Because here we discover that Jesus is the unique solution to a universal problem of seemingly unlimited power. And that when we understand the universal problem of seemingly unlimited power, the unique solution of Jesus becomes the source and the fountain of life that leads to thanksgiving and gratitude in front of God. And so we're going to consider the passage this morning under these three parts, the universal problem, the unlimited power, and the unique solution. But first, let's handle the universal problem. It's important to begin where Paul begins in verse 1. "...Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives." And so Paul transitions here in chapter 7 to specifically speak of the law, and he is talking about the Mosaic law of the Old Testament. All 613 commandments of it. And he is specifically addressing, it seems, to be Jewish Christians in the first century. We know from other evidence in the New Testament that there was a huge divide in the church between Jew and Gentile. Gentiles had begun to believe in Jesus just like Jews had. And then the Jewish Christians, though, were saying that the Gentiles needed to follow the Mosaic law in order to be fully included in the church. That is the pastoral situation that is unfolding here in the book of Romans. And Paul has to argue about why law observance is no longer necessary. That that is not part of the new covenant. And so what Paul turns to do is to say that this Jewish code, this law of Moses that once marked out the people of God, that they have died to it And the Jews, they found the law to be a source of boasting. It was a source of confidence. The Torah was a gift of God. As we read in Psalm 119, it was a delight. And so they found that it marked them out. And so, of course, everyone needed to follow it and obey it. But what Paul does is he turns the law on the Jewish observer. And he says, no, the law doesn't distinguish you the law actually condemns you as well. That the Gentiles apart from the law were considered to be sinful and alienated from God, and that you, under the power of the law, Paul will argue, are condemned as well. That you are guilty before God. It makes you just like everybody else. He uses an interesting illustration. He uses the illustration of marriage in verses 1-6. through And Paul explains that we are married and that a married spouse is not free to leave their spouse because the law holds them there. But what Paul says the problem is is that our marriage partner is bad. And you'll note that he doesn't say that the marriage partner is law, that the law holds you to your partner. And the partner, he will explain in verse 5 and 6, is the flesh. And so we're married to the flesh. And so people naturally ask, well, what does he mean by the flesh? Does he mean the body? No. What Paul means by the term flesh is what we found in Romans 6 when he referred to the old man or the old self. It is the pre-converted self under the power and control of sin. And so he says that we are married to the flesh, to the power and control of sin, and the law holds us in that relationship. And so the law doesn't distinguish you. The law doesn't help you. The law doesn't mitigate sin. He actually says in verse 5 that the law exacerbates sin. It makes it worse. Flannery O'Connor, my favorite short story that she writes, it's called Everything That Rises Must Converge. It's a story set in Atlanta, Georgia, with a son named Julian taking his mother to a doctor's appointment she as women of her generation were prone to do when going out in public she was going to wear her finest and she had purchased a new hat o'connor describes it as a green velvet hat some kind of contraption with a purple cushion on it she was proud of the hat she doubted herself a little bit about purchasing it because it had been so expensive But then she justifies it, and this is what she says. She says, you only live once, and paying a little more for it, at least I won't meet myself coming and going. This hat distinguished her. She was so utterly proud of it. It set her apart. It was a sign of much more. She enters onto the bus with her son. They are riding As they are riding across town, she begins to make snide remarks about African Americans on the bus. Julian is extremely embarrassed. He wishes his mother would be quiet. But she was reflecting the classic Southern value of separate but equal. Just an African American can rise up in society, but they have to do so on their side of the tracks. She was haughty, she was arrogant. She was disrespectful. Julian grew greatly annoyed with her. And then they stopped, let off some passengers, and an African-American lady boarded the bus. There were no seats, and so she came to sit right next to Julian's mother. O'Connor writes this, As the woman boarded the bus, Julian notices that she's wearing a hat. The vision of the two hats, identical, broke upon him with the radiance of a brilliant sunrise. His face was suddenly lit with joy. Julian thought to himself, her punishment fits her pettiness. (laughs) She turned her eyes on him slowly. The blue in them seemed to have turned a bruised purple. And that which distinguished her became a mark of her own humiliation, of her own vanity, of her own condemnation. And friends, this is exactly how the Jewish law comes to work. That that which the Israelite nation thought distinguished them and set them apart, that which they boasted in, that they thought made them special, Paul says no. No. For while we were living in the flesh, that is, bound and married to the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. He will go on to explain that the law is holy, it's righteous, and it's good. But the law was bearing death in you because of your bad marriage to the flesh. And so there is a universal problem. It is for the Jew, it is for the Gentile, that there is no ground for boasting. There is no confidence that we can have before God outside of Jesus. And Paul is reducing to smithereens anything that someone would boast in to try to give them a standing in front of God, including the good, righteous, and holy Torah of the Old Testament, that it is no grounds for that. There are no exceptions, that we cannot underestimate the problem of sin a massive universal problem. But Paul understands that we are prone to underestimate sin. And so he takes us deeper into this universal problem. And this leads us to our second point. It's the unlimited power of it. The unlimited power of the universal problem. In verse 7, he asks a question again. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? And he answers it, By no means. He understands that we underestimate sin's power, and he takes us into the crisis because undoubtedly, some people did not like what Paul said about the law. They thought that if the law bound us to sin, then the law must some way be sinful. And Paul then argues from verse 7 through 12 that this is not the case at all. In verse 12, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And what he argues is that the law is like a mirror. And when you don't like what you see in the mirror, it's not the mirror's fault. Don't throw anything at the mirror. Or if you get on the scale and you don't like the number, don't kick the scale. (laughs) It's no fault of the scale. The scale is good. The mirror is good. It's the reflection. It's what you see. And so Paul is arguing that sin has taken up residence through the law to condemn us. It's used something good and it catalyzes sin in our lives through it. I learned about catalyzers in an unfortunate way when I was doing college ministry in Clinton, South Carolina. I worked with Uh, students at Presbyterian College. And I was married to my great shame at this point in my life, but my wife had gone away. It's the first weekend she left me uh, as a married man. And uh, so Friday night, I go out with the young college guys that I ministered to. There was not an incredible amount to do in Clinton, South Carolina, if you can imagine, a town of 5,000 people. And so we had to drive to Zaxby's 45 minutes away just to find something to eat. And uh, so on the way and the way back, we had inordinate amounts of time to Decide how we were going to waste our Friday evening together, we discovered to our great delight that one of our friends was on a double date, and he was going to be having dinner at, uh, at this house. And, uh, and so we had uh, taken basic chemistry, and we understood that you could take an empty two-liter bottle, put aluminum foil, and then some other things. I will not specify those things, but those are catalyzers, Okay. <laughs> They catalyze a reaction inside of the closed uh, two-liter bottle, and it will blow up the bottle. We'd done this a few times, and it was funny. It was kind of loud, not that big a deal. That night, we decided that we would set up three of these around the house. It takes about five minutes for it to react and for the bottle to then explode. And uh, so you have ample time to remove yourself to a distant location and listen to what happens. The first one goes off about like normal. We could barely hear it. And then we still don't know exactly what happened, but the catalyzer inside of that bottle was extremely potent. We hear this large boom. You feel it base your chest. We were a half mile away. A board was blown off the house. Bushes disturbed. We. It was like dynamite, even though it wasn't. It was a catalyzer, putting in the chemicals, reacted with aluminum, intensifying the reaction that was taking place. Friends, this is what Paul says what the law is to the flesh, that the law catalyzes sin, builds and grows, makes it more intense. And then he shows us the effects of this in verses 13 through 25, and he uses extremely strong language. He uses the metaphor of captivity Twice. He says that we are captive in verse 14 to sin. Read along with me. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. I am of the old man sold under sin. Paul says that he is taken captive by the flesh, held in that marriage relationship to the flesh by the law, and that all he is explaining in this passage as he speaks in the first person about his experience with the law is that he cannot do the good that he wants to do. As any first century Jew, he delighted in the law, quoting from Psalm 119, but he could not do it. He says he was not able. And in verse 23, he summarizes his situation. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Captive to the law of sin. The great controversy about this passage becomes, is Paul speaking about his existence prior to his conversion to Jesus Or is he speaking about his present existence as a Christian? My position is that Paul is speaking about his existence prior to his conversion. That he speaks of being captive and held by a law of sin, a prisoner to it. And friends, in Romans 6, we read this, that we are no longer enslaved to sin because we're united to Jesus. For one who has died in the death of Christ has been set free from sin, verses 6 and 7. And then in chapter 8, which we'll handle next week, in verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And so that which Paul says he was captive to, the law of sin, Christ Jesus has set you free from, Paul is arguing. And so I do believe he uses the present tense in an odd way here, and this is where it's difficult, to speak of his former existence under the law and why Jewish Christians should not continue to practice it and why they can't enforce it. Because in the flesh, when we're bound to the flesh, our old sinful self, as we are born into the world, we are in unresolvable tension condemned everywhere we turn we desire to do good but we can't do it sin is overwhelming us and friends this is not to downplay though that we all in our christian existence struggle with sin it's just simply that we need to go to another passage in the bible and it's there but what paul is arguing here is just simply that in our experience with the law under it it condemns us and we're locked up under sin held captive to it and so we have a universal problem of seemingly unlimited power that just jumps on us and controls us and this delivers us to the unique solution it's the solution that creates doxology And friends, we only understand the grace of God when it's brought in relief against the universal problem and the depth of the problem, how deep sin's crisis is in our lives. Because in our struggle against sin, we do often feel completely paralyzed. We can be paralyzed by the guilt of the wrongs that we've done, the shame that accumulates, and we can be paralyzed just by the power and hold it has over us. We don't know what to do. But what if someone else has taken up our cause? What if our struggle against sin involves the fate of someone else? What if our struggle with sin is not in our own hands? And this is exactly what Paul will argue in Romans 7. That our struggle with sin, our victory of it, is not up to us. That our fate and our struggle with sin has been taken up into the hands of another. In verses 2-4, through to return to the marriage metaphor, what Paul explains is that typically when a spouse is bound to another spouse, the law holds them in that relationship until one of the spouses dies then you are free from the law. And so you're only free from the law of marriage, he says in verse 3, when your spouse dies. And so to be free from the law, he follows the logic into verse 4 that there must be a death. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. That someone else has taken your case, that the death has been affected, and that joined to Jesus, his death becomes your death. He accomplishes it for you. He sets you free so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. And so, friends, we are free to remarry. We are free to find a new spouse. We're no longer bound to the flesh. The old man that holds us in the captivity of sin, that law actually catalyzes sin within. We are no longer bound to that one, Paul is arguing. That you are now free for another who has been raised from the dead. You are free for new life, is his argument. This is the unique solution. That Jesus has taken on our flesh and received it and taken the curse of our flesh Himself. He was condemned that we no longer be condemned. And so we have died to the law through the body of Christ. Now there are two results of this though. When we absorb all that Paul is arguing, all that he's saying, two monstrous promises of the grace of God. And the first is that we are free from condemnation. If you look in chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no judgment for those who are in Christ. That He has taken on our flesh. That He has received our due penalty in Himself. He has absorbed it because He was condemned. There is no damnation for you. It's the logic of the Gospel. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And verse 3 is a further explanation of what he has said in the previous chapter. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And it is this righteous requirement of the law, or you could say righteous verdict of the law, that Christ fulfills for us. He does it on our behalf. We are free from condemnation, from the guilt and shame of sin. And this is what Paul says leads to doxology that a righteous verdict has been passed on your life despite our multiplying in many sins. Whether we are Jew or Gentile, the universal problem has been declared null and void because of what Jesus does for us. And so this is the first result. We're free. And the second result is that we're pregnant. You say, what? It's a provocative metaphor that Paul uses in Romans 7, but if you follow the logic of it in verse 4, he says that we've been joined to a new spouse. We're no longer married to the flesh, but we have new life in the Spirit, he explains in verse 6. And in verse 4, he says, in order that we may bear fruit for God. This is the pregnancy metaphor. That no longer do we bear fruit to death with the flesh, but with our new spouse, we bear fruit for God. That is, we have progeny, spiritual fruit that is emerging from the Spirit of God in us. And friends, he uses this metaphor because it is particularly potent. Because pregnancy is not something you choose, it's something that happens to you, it's a gift that comes. And this is what Paul is saying about spiritual fruit. That it comes to us in the grace of God. That it is a gift of Him. It's not something that we earn or deserve or work out. But it is power, it's capacity, it's ability, it's freedom that's given to us in Jesus. As He takes on the body of sin and destroys it. We are now pregnant in the Spirit of God to bear fruit for God. It's 2003. Melissa and I discovered that we were pregnant. It was our last year of seminary. Our reactions were very different. I said, it worked. She cried. (laughs) Because that day, what we had discovered when we took a pregnancy test was that there was a reality that had already happened. There was no possibility of opting in at that point. It had already been done. It had worked out. She was pregnant. There was life. It was a gift. We were catching up with reality. And friends, that is how Paul argues with us as well. That no matter how we feel in our struggle with sin, we are pregnant. The Spirit of God living within us to bear fruit. That grace has been given. And what we need to do is catch up with that reality. Remember all that has been done for us. That this is all gift. The double grace of God in freeing us from sin's condemnation and freeing us also from sin's power. Pregnant in the Spirit to bear fruit now for God. And this double grace is what leads to a life of praise. It's that this grace generates gratitude that does find expression before God in worship. And it finds expression in a life that's then offered to God in sacrificial thanksgiving. And when the grace of God doesn't create rejoicing, robust expression like Paul's, We're in the middle of his argument. A very difficult argument. He explodes into praise and thanksgiving and he says, thanks be to God. It is worth questioning whether we experience and know and get it. Because friends, the universal problem is deep. It's immense, profound. And the law magnifies it. But then the unique solution of Jesus taking on flesh in order that He can make Himself a sin offering for us, in order to fulfill the righteous verdict of the law, and to free us from the old spouse that held us captive, and to bring us into a new life. That's grace that's difficult to comprehend. And when we experience that, it leads to praise and doxology. It leads to thanksgiving to God. And it will be written throughout a Christian worship service. From the absolution to the songs that follow, from hearing God's Word, we will say thanks be to God. From receiving any goodness from Him, of giving our gifts to Him, we will respond with doxology and praise. Liturgy is simply a way to give shape to the Christian life. And it is why we worship the way that we do. To give shape to this doxological meaning of life of grace generating gratitude and thanksgiving. And this is what Paul is saying in Romans 7. The grace of God is big. Receive it all. Receive freedom from condemnation. Receive freedom in new life and all that God gives. Because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ.